Psalm 41. Go ahead and turn there. It's good to be back with you, church family. Um, someone had asked me the question, was it, is it, is it and are you glad that you're back at Bethesda? And I said, yes, I am glad to be back. Someone says, what is, was it great to be on vacation? And I'll also say yes to that as well. It was it was good to be with family. Uh, we got to go to San Antonio. That's where I'm from. See my uh, parents, my sister, uh, pawn off our uh, kids on uh, grandma and grandpa. And Justine and I went up to Fort Worth, spent some time at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I've been at and continue to be at school. Saw some professors, saw great friends, ate a lot of really good Tex-Mex barbecue. It was wonderful. And... I will tell you this, I have told uh, our elders this and anyone who's willing to listen. After going to Texas and then coming back here, this no doubt is the best weather I've ever experienced in my life in, in, in South Dakota. And so the trade-off for the winter has been worth it and I think we'll, we'll stay. And so, uh, just so you know. And so during that time while we've been gone, uh, you've had uh, three different preachers mention this at the end of last week. Uh, Wes, Anthony, and Matt, and they have continued us through our sermon series in the Psalms. Uh, Drew, do me a favor. Put the series slide up real quick. I want to explain something. You see how it says volume one at the bottom? That has been very intentional, and the reason for that has been because we've been in book one of the Psalms. If you were to go through all 150, you would notice at certain points it says book one, two, three, four, and five. And so we've been looking at selections from book one. So we started in Psalm 1, and now we're ending, it breaks my heart, we can't do all of them, we're ending with chapter 41, which is where we're at today. And so someone had said to me that Bethesda has a history of uh, good preachers, and I'm thankful that that is true, not speaking of myself, but speaking about others who have been able to come in. Uh, it is that is a luxury you should know that many pastors don't have. And so uh, when you see uh, those gentlemen, thank them again for the work that they've done. I want to read the last verse, actually, of chapter 40, verse 17. I want to read that and then make a few comments, and then we'll hop, hop into chapter 41. Uh, verse 17 says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. The thought occurred to me last week as uh, Matt was reading and preaching through this text, this, this statement, you're my help and my deliverer, that you can't fully understand or begin to acknowledge how much God is your deliverer until you've had something or experienced something that God has to deliver you from, right? It's one thing to acknowledge the truth. It's another thing to have encountered it in the reality of your life. What leads a person to pray with utter sincerity and belief, to sing corporate songs, like you, you, really, you really mean it from your soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, we're just saying, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Until you've gone through that fire and you've come out the other side 
and not just God delivering you from something, but through something, can you, and you've encountered that peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of it, you will sing that song differently afterwards than you did before. Last week, I read Psalm 34 that says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And so I have in my Bible, if you were to, you probably can't really see from there, but if you were to look at Psalm 34, you can see the passage, right? And then you see some scribbling over off to the side. I recommend to you, I give you, as if you need it, permission. You can write in your Bible. And, and what I have written in my Bible next to those words that I just read were some prayers. I want to encourage you to do this because you can come back later in your devotional time and go, wow, Lord, you answered me in such a way that I wasn't expecting or I hadn't seen. And it is a faith builder to reflect on what he's done. Let me do a little bit of this. Let me just read you some of my personal prayers. Here it is. So this is 2018. God, we have just moved to California. Please give, I have a job, but please give Justine a new job. That was, that was summer of 2018. A couple years after that, in February 2020, you, you know something happened in March of 2020, right? Things, the world changed. But before that, it is now days, maybe moments until August is born. Both Justine and I have been blessed with good jobs and have lived in a new home for two whole months. Our first home. God is so good to us. It was 2020. 2023, um, August 7th. And today, I preached my first sermon as Bethesda's senior pastor, Lord. Just eight months ago, I was an associate pastor cleaning toilets at Mountain View Church. If only these people knew who they got. <laughs> now look what you've done. Right? I should let you know, by the way, that I have a brand new, because of some of these experiences, I have a, a completely different respect for janitorial workers, and I'm very thankful for them. I have more prayers down here. Today is the one-year anniversary since our family has come here and we put down our roots, and I have been your pastor, and we were talking as staff on Tuesday. We meet every Tuesday in the morning, and we just went, how has it gone so fast in one year? And yet, so much has happened at the same time. And so, it gives you a strength in your faith to look backwards at what God can do when he delivers, when he redeems, and all of those things. But it gives you hope for the future. So let's look to the future. Let's with faithfulness, look at Psalm 41, and let's get to work together. Here's what it says. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Maybe your translation says weak. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him, the Lord protects him, and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. He is called, yeah, he's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. We have a God who is capable, and he is capable of blessing us, even in the midst of adversity. And so, if you find yourself in your own sick bed, 
whatever that may look like, I want you to know that God doesn't just bless us in good moments, but even in the midst of challenge. Let us see that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are in your presence, and we say, help us. Holy Spirit, draw near to us now. Help us see what we could not have seen otherwise in your word. Let us see how the point of the Psalms is to lead us to Jesus, to glorify his name. Jesus, reveal yourself to us. Lord, so many of my friends are working through so much, even now. Lord, let what we do right now be an encouragement. Let your word go forth and do what it's supposed to do. We trust you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you look at this chapter, uh, in verses one through three, David begins and affirms that God's people have a storehouse of blessing that is for them. And so if you were to take chapter one of book one, remember we said we're in, at the end of book one, you go to the first verse, what word does it begin with? In chapter one, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it begins with that word blessed. And if you were to rewind the tape and go back to our first sermon in this series that we looked at, Psalm 1 is all about what the blessed life looks like, and now we're bookending it, and right here again, we get the blessed life once again. And he begins by saying, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Again, your translation may say the weak. And so how do you know someone who has been blessed by God? How do you know you found someone who's living that blessed life? The answer is that they that they are taking what God has blessed them with and they're demonstrating it through the righteousness of the Christian life. It's not just any person that God blesses. It's the person who is living according to God's principles. He, cares for, he or she cares about the oppressed, the downtrodden, the widow and orphan, James 1, 26 through 27. Perfect religion is this, to take care of widows and orphans in their time of need. Truly blessed person isn't just someone who has material possessions, but you can see their life on full display. I think of in this moment, I think of uh, June Weeby who just passed away recently, and she was, uh, she was married to one of our former district ministers, and I had the chance of meeting her one time, and I, when, I, when I met her, it was at a funeral back in June. That's someone who was living the blessed life. You could tell that she had a genuine care for others. And I said, when I grow up, I want to be like this woman. I don't know what she has done. Actually, I have a pretty good idea what she's done. She's walked with Jesus her whole life. When I get there, that's how I want to be. And so he's blessed and it's demonstrated through how he lives. But not only that, David then gives you several lines for how God does that blessing. Look at it. He delivers. He protects. He names this person as blessed. He doesn't give him up to his enemies. He sustains him in wickedness, restores him to full health. And so that blessed person has a treasury of grace at his disposal from God. His motto is not pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Instead, he has divine wind in his sails. But you notice the setting in which he is speaking here generally. So David is speaking generally here. And if you were to look at certain psalms, this is one of the things that I've picked up on, 
as I've gone through and I've studied these chapters, is that David will begin generally, and then he'll get more specific. God, here's who I know you to be, and then here's my issue. He gets more specific. But here generally he says, this is what God can do. And yet the setting, you see, is he protects him, he protects him, keeps him alive, he delivers him from his sickbed, And so you get a description of in the day of trouble, when his enemies want to take him, when he is ill, God is there for the man or the woman who is in trouble. He's there in adversity. And it's so true. I've experienced in my life, I know you've experienced in yours, that so often we encounter God's blessings when the idols are pulled away from us and we realize we've got nothing left. We could have taken good things, made them into idols, and God says no, takes them away. And all we have is him. And we see those words, taste and see that the Lord is good. It may come through suffering and challenge and adversity that you most clearly can experience that. Through trouble, times of trouble. And yet those last words, the Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. I will tell you, man, I have been pouring over that, those two lines in my mind over these last weeks. I've been thinking about them because I know that there are so many of us. This is where my heart has gone. I, I think of so many of us who have either lost loved ones very recently, who themselves are dealing with chronic pain, and it seems like there's, there's no end in sight. Or there's even others of us who are watching loved ones whose lives and their health are just fading away. What do you do when you come to a verse like this? It seems pretty a matter of fact that God sustains and yet, does he? Does he actually restore back to full health? Or maybe we could ask the question this way. And this is why I think it's important why we pause for a moment and linger here. Give, give us a brief theology of the concept of healing. Let me ask the question this way. Does God heal today? Does he promise to heal? And I don't, I don't, I don't just mean like does he heal Dr. Lowen, right? You know, the, the medical doctor. I mean, does he miraculously heal today? Yes, is what I would say to that. I don't think you can find anywhere in scripture where it, it says the Lord is done doing the miraculous. Let me, let me clarify this question even, let's go even further now. Does God promise to always heal us when we ask him today? Does he promise to always heal when we ask? I think the answer is yes as well. But the answer to when that yes is, is in his own prerogative. Sometimes God heals I can give you, I'm thinking of stories right now where I have prayed full of doubt and 1% of faith and then seen the Lord move in ways I can't fully make sense of. And then there's been other times where I've been full of faith, I've prayed, and yet the Lord didn't move in the way I thought he should. Sometimes God in his sovereignty heals miraculously and does something for his glory and all you can do is say amen. Other times when we ask God to heal He says, not yet. And in his sovereignty, he gives us a blessed no now, but a yes for the life to come. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some will say, 
Maybe you've encountered people like this who will say, the reason why you haven't experienced healing in your life or for the person you've been praying for is because you don't have enough faith. Anybody ever heard that? I absolutely have heard that. And I just want to say that is a lie straight from the pit of hell and you throw it back where it belongs because that is an evidence or that is a mindset that is based on works and not based on Christ. It is, it is a mindset that is based on the strength of my faith and not the object of my faith. It is based on what I do and not what, not what God does. And, and this is, I'm not just saying this just, just to talk about healing. Like this is real stuff. I can think of stories where I've seen people get it wrong. And it's devastating. I'll give you an example. There was a, a family, and I may have shared this with some of you at some point before. There was a family that I was asked to go pray with several years ago. The husband had leukemia, and it was on a Tuesday night. And we go and pray for him and, and, and to give him into the hands of the Lord. Could God have worked? We believed he could. And so we're there, and the mother, uh, the wife, and there's, there's the kids. I still can see them in the... In the in the doorway in the hall. And we're there in the living room and she has the utmost faith and she says that someone had come to her and spoken a word over her and said, I saw a vision where there was a bowl and in that bowl were, were prayers of God's people being placed in it and once that those prayers and petitions for your husband were filled all the way to the top, then God would answer and deliver. And... So she had the utmost faith that even if this man died, her husband, he could be brought back from the dead. And that's what we encountered on Tuesday, and he passed away on Saturday. And he, and he didn't come back from the dead. And so I had a friend of mine, we were pouring over, what went wrong? What was, what was all of that about? And the more we thought about it, the more it became very clear that whatever that woman had heard was not was not an outflow of the gospel of grace, but said, if you pray so much, if you do so much, if so many people do this, then God will act. And that's, that's totally not true at all. Like if, the, if my salvation was based on the strength of my faith, I would still be going to hell today. But, this, but my salvation is based on not what I have done, but what Christ has done for me and his finished work in dying on the cross and, and the effects of that being given to me. Okay? And so, for, and so for us, when we pray in faith, we say, Lord, you are sovereign, you're in charge, and I'm putting this in front of you. I don't command the Lord to do something. I don't say, Lord, you do this. I say, how does it go? Oh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I give it to him, and I say, you're in charge. And what helps me tremendously is knowing that God does not know, owe me anything. My life is not my own, and he can do what he pleases with it. And so I say, Lord, have your way. That's how we ought to pray. And so should we pray for healing? Should we pray that verse three would be done in our life and in other people's lives? Yes. And you leave the results to the Lord. He's in charge. Verse four. There's so much to say, we don't have time. Let's keep going. David now gets specific, and he moves from the third person to the first person. And he says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, 
And then he goes out and he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me, and they imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up, that I may repay them. I think when we look at these words, we can also see that in our time of adversity, God calls us to avoid slander the way David's enemies do, do that. And then also that we're supposed to pray for the grace to respond in the right way, even if we're cursed by others. David goes general, he goes specific, and he says, Lord, see what these people are doing to me. One of them, it seems the setting is, one of them even comes to him on his sickbed and then collects information and goes back out to the others and says, he's not going to make it. Uh, They're looking forward to his downfall. He's done. And I just think about that and I go, what despair that you could be in your most vulnerable moment. You ever been there? Being your most vulnerable moment and then people behind your back are cutting you down. And that's what's happening to David. And these are the types of people that ignore the words from the Proverbs which say, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away from his anger from them. Jonah would have done well to take heed to these these words. I think a word of, is important here at this point because it's very easy for you and I to look at these words about David's enemies and make them like a caricature into the big bad wolf and go, yeah, those terrible people out there. While failing to see how you and I are so prone to be just like this. I was talking to a friend about a week ago and we were talking about the cultural differences uh, between big city environment and small rural city or town environment, and particularly how it affects the church. Uh, in, in particular, where I was before and where I've, where I've been prior is that in larger city settings, people can be far more transient. Uh, it was about two to four years people had a shelf life. They were coming and going. By comparison, here at Bethesda, if you were to look at our transition report done a couple years ago that gave a lot of stats about our church family, on average, somebody spends about 17 years at Bethesda. Much different, right? Two to four years, 17 years. And so there's a stability and a consistency that is an incredible blessing that can come with that. Um, I think uh, about what something that one of our elders had said to me uh, when I came here. They said, there's going to be someone who will come up to you, uh, one, of, one of our uh, guys in the church, and he'll say, Pastor, I was here before you, and I'm going to be here after you. And he has said that to the last several pastors. I should tell you, that same person did come up to me. And he probably gave me the the kindest compliment I've received since I've been here. Pastor, I was here before you, and I hope you'll be my last pastor. That was a very, very kind thing to say. And so there's a stability that comes. Pastors can come and go in in smaller town churches, but the people stay the same. And so I've appreciated that stability. However... I've also picked up on another somewhat odd dynamic. Uh, you can know people's business without 
knowing them really. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. Hey, friend, I saw that there's tomatoes growing in your backyard. They look ripe. They look like they're ready to be picked. Good for you. Hey, I saw your car parked in, the, in front of the office. Uh, you, were staying, you were staying at work late. I hope you're getting home to see the kids. Okay? Don't commit a crime in Huron. It's going to end up in the Daily Plainsman, right? Right? I got, I, I got a warning about a month ago, and I just went, oh, my goodness, is everybody going to know? I got a, got a warning, right? People can more easily know your business in an environment like this. But my question for each one of us is, do people really know your heart? See, you can have a lot of people in the periphery of your life, but don't really know you. Do they know your hopes and your longings? Do they, do they know your struggles and what you're really going through? Do you have a lot of people who know your business, but don't really know the real you? And as I spoke to my friend about the larger city context and the smaller town context, we realized that in the, the bigger city environment, people can go more quickly can, more, can go more deep more quickly, right? That doesn't happen here as much. What's the reason you might ask that people don't open up maybe as much, though it seems like there might be a facade otherwise? I think the answer is in one word. Gossip. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body, Proverbs 18 Proverbs 11, Proverbs 11 says, a perverse person, person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. You go, no wonder the psalmist will say, set a guard over my mouth. Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. Work can spread quickly and that's why people can keep things close to the vest. We change out the pews on a Wednesday and half the church already knows about it before we announce it on Sunday, right? You already know, you already knew, many of you. And so people go, I will keep things close because I don't want my personal stuff out there. And I just want to say, when that happens, the church suffers. People can live in quiet desperation, not having shared it with others, and they're doing life alone. Have no one to come alongside and aid them. And I just want to say, friends, for us, when we look at Psalm 41, let you and I never be the reason that somebody else has to pray Psalm 41 to the Lord. Let us never be the reason someone has to pray what David says in verse 4 through 10. Here's a good rule of thumb. Never say anything about anyone that you wouldn't be willing to say to their face. When you hear about someone going through a problem, don't get giddy. We don't get giddy and go, I have information that you don't have. Let me share that with you. Or we put a Christian spin on that. Oh, you hear about such and such. We should really pray for them, right? No, don't do that. Let us be the kind of people that we put empty words, gossip, whispering, all of those kinds of things to death. Again, as if, you, as if you needed permission, let me give it to you. If you come across a church member and they start going such and such and such and such, and such right? If someone does that, you can say, friend, please don't share that with me. I don't need to know that. I don't need that. Churches typically can get labeled. That's the liberal church. That's the conservative church. That's the Hispanic church. That's the black church. That's the white church. Let me ask you, if people were to define Bethesda and they only got one or two words, what do you think they would use to define us? When they got one or two words, what do you think they would say? Humble? Gracious? Forgiving? Loving? 
Or would they say, hypocritical, gossipers, backstabbers. Let it be the former and not the latter. We should be helpers and not hinderers. We should be a blessing and confidant to others. There are things that I don't even share with Justine when someone has come to me and has said, hey, I need to share this to you in confidence. You know part of the reason why I do that? is because I want my wife to have her own relationship with that person that is not tainted by the things that are shared with me. I'm actually protecting my wife by doing that. And so I think of some pastors who have been in, I, maybe you have seen this, I know I have seen this, pastors who have had people tell things to them in a marital counseling session in private on a Tuesday, and they'll go, I was, having, I was having a conversation with such and such on a Sunday morning, and I go, brother, why do you do that? No one's ever going to share anything with you ever again. Sometimes when we mess it up like that, our reputation is gone, and we don't get a chance again. And so I want to say for, for us, what do we do with the things that are shared with us? Do we act like David's enemies, or instead, are we trustworthy? Let us be trustworthy so that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus and not those of the, the devil. This is what has happened to David. And he goes even further and he says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You've heard me quote Psalm 55 before. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Wounds are more painful when they come from those who are close to us. The reason why wounds hurt more from our spouse than from our coworker is because of the access and the trust and all that that we've given to our spouse and not someone that we may just work with. And so if you have been on the receiving end of the betrayal of words, I want you to know, friend, that you are not alone, but you have a Savior who understands. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. In fact, you look at verse 9, it should be familiar to you. Look at it again. Where have you heard that before? Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, he lifted his heel against me. These are the words that Jesus quotes when he reveals at the Lord's Supper who it is that will betray him, the person who takes the bread with him. Who is it? Judas. So if there's anyone who's ever encountered betrayal, it's Jesus. You may have encountered betrayal, but I look at all of you and, and you're still alive. The betrayal that came to Jesus cost him his life. And so consider that he is there to comfort us who understands what we go through and our weakness and the pain that we encounter. And then go even a step further and remind yourself that he is the only innocent sufferer. You and I are not innocent sufferers. Because if it takes me just a moment, I can think of the times when I've betrayed other people and I've been like the enemies of David. I may, in my own suffering, have spoken negatively about others. Oh, that convicts me. Judas betrayed Christ, and we're implicated on the side of Judas. And yet Jesus brought forgiveness, and if we're in him, we're identified with him. David says, O oh Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. A strong emotion. He comes to the end of this psalm, and he cries out not for revenge but for vindication. And he says, Lord, 
I care about injustice, and I care, I care that God's people, including myself, would have justice on behalf of the Lord. See the difference? We're talking vindication, not mere revenge. And he ends with these words. He says, but this I know that you delight in me. My enemy shall not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set in me your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Friend, if you are in adversity this morning, because someone has either betrayed you or you are in a sickbed of your own or you know others and therefore your suffering may be secondhand, I want you to know that as God delivers you, may not, maybe not just from it, but through it, it is evidence that he delights in you. I come across so many people who go, does God care about me? Does he love me? See the work that he does in the midst of it, and as he acts, he does not do it out of mere duty because that's just what God does, but because he delights in those who are his own. And our response, maybe from when we've journaled in the side of our Bible, or as we've taken note elsewhere, we've thought about what God has done, our response is to bless the Lord. It's always struck me odd. Why should I bless the Lord as if there's anything I can give him? He blesses me. Why do I bless him? When the Lord blesses us, he gives us out of the storehouse of his grace all the blessings we looked at in verse 1 through 3. When When he blesses us, he blesses us with the fullness of his presence forever, no matter what we may go through temporarily in this life. And then we respond by blessing him, by praising him and acknowledging him for who he is and how he is worthy. And so has he blessed you? Has he taken you through adversity so that you could cry out those words of 2 Corinthians 1, that it's a blessed thing that we would go through challenge so that we can help others who go through the same challenges because we've experienced the grace of God and now we can help others? That's you? Then bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And so these words end, friends, the words of Psalm 41, in a book one of our series. This is the prayer book of the Bible. My prayer for you is that if you are far from the Lord and you are looking to grow closer with him, that if there's any book of the Bible where your tears should soak through from sorrow and yet also from joy, this should be it. And I hope that as we look with David at who our God is, we would draw closer in intimacy with him and that we would turn to him and see that he is worthy of our lives. Next week is our 80th anniversary as a church. And I look forward to celebrating that with you, what God has done. I want to remind you that we're going to have eight former pastors here and so I'm going to be sitting down taking notes. Tell, tell, me, tell me how it went, right? And I look forward to not just going, well, look how awesome we are, but look at what he has done. And so I want to invite you on Saturday night at the Schneider's house. Uh, those pastors will be there. Come join us. Next morning at 9 o'clock, we are going to be uh, hearing from those pastors. We'll have a panel. We'll celebrate during the worship service, and then we'll have food afterwards. 
But let us look back as we look at these past 80 years. Let us have strength for how the Lord blesses us now as we look forward to the present for what he's capable of doing. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.